Hello, and welcome to Lines from Loganberry, from Loganberry Books. We are a local independent bookshop located in the historic Larchmere neighborhood of beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. With this podcast, we hope to stay connected to you as we weather the coronavirus storm together. Each week, we will help you discover new books, rave about our latest favorite reads, and check in with our friendly bookstore cat Otis to learn more about what's going on in our humble shop. For more information about Loganberry Books, visit our website at loganberrybooks.com or check our social media at Loganberry Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On today's episode, author Adele Berté and musicology journalist Charlotte Morgan discuss Why LaBelle Matters, a history of the musical group of Patti LaBelle, Nona Hendrix, and Sarah Dash. They discuss the obstacles women in music face, the rise of Afrofuturism in the 1970s, and collaborations with and influences between black and white musicians. Just to give a quick content warning, within this episode there is a brief discussion on sexual abuse. If you would like to skip the section in question, please check the timestamps included in the episode description. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's introduce our guest. Adele Berté was born in Cleveland, Ohio, daughter of an Italian immigrant and a ballroom dance instructor. She became a ward of the state in 1967 with the rest of her childhood years spent in foster homes and reformatories in the greater Cleveland area. Her career in music began as a singer guitarist in a rock band called Peter and the Wolves, performing at Longshoremen and biker bars in Cleveland. Berté has toured the world as a musician with her band, The Bloods, one of America's first all girl bands and as a backup singer with Tears for Fears. She has performed and recorded as a backing vocalist for artists such as Thomas Dolby, Culture Club, Whitney Houston, and Sandra Bernhardt. Currently a resident of Los Angeles, she continues her long career as a songwriter, writer, director, performer, and musician. Adele will be interviewed by friend of Loganberry, Charlotte Morgan. Adele and Charlotte, hello and thank you and welcome to Lines of Loganberry. Thank you, Maisha. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Hi, Charlotte. <laughs> Hi, Adele. How are you doing? I'm good. Great to see you. Great to see you as well. I'd like to begin by thanking Loganberry for the opportunity to have you here with us this afternoon and for the opportunity for me to be able to be in conversation with you about your book, Why LaBelle Matters. So I'd like to begin with a simple question. Can you read us the thesis for your, for your book? Can you read something for us? Sure, let me see what we have. I was thinking I would read a paragraph from the preface. Why LaBelle Matters is the story of an all-girl band riding a cultural roller coaster together across the decades while singing their power over every steep ascent and dip. How did they do it? How did LaBelle manage to claim their space as such unique women artists in a time when male heteronormative dictates held a near stranglehold on the presentation of women entertainers? Here one arrives at a fundamental theory of why LaBelle matters. They succeeded not by visionary talent and stamina alone, but by fiercely protecting their core strength, their union with one another. The power of a group of women 
in this case of black and white and straight and queer women working together, dedicated to creating something of cultural import was chimeric in the early 1970s. The very concept of women working together across race, class, and the sharp borders of identity continues to require the imagining of a world different from where we live today. What Patty, Nona, Sarah, and Vicki, their manager, created together was utopian. Decidedly and beautifully feminist, the LaBelle Project pointed the way to possibilities shimmering on the edge of our horizon. Thank you. I think that's a very powerful passage from this, this text. For those who, who know and those who don't know, who are LaBelle and how did they come together? Well, Patti LaBelle was singing in Philly, where she's from. You know, it, it was a time when uh, girl groups started singing together, uh, kind of mimicking initially the doo-wop boys, boy groups. And she had her own little singing group in Philly. And then Nona Hendricks had met Sarah Dash at church. Sarah Dash wanted a singer for her own little group that she was putting together. She heard Nona's voice, so they became a singing group. Mm -hmm. And um, Patty, you know, was going through different people with her singing group, and they met a guy named Bernard Montague, who was a manager separately. And the coincidence was that Patty's Patty was looking for two new singers for her group, mm -hmm. and they happened to meet through Bernard Montague, and it was kind of magic. They lost a fourth member, but then they gained Cindy Birdsong. So I think it was about 1962 when they actually started singing as a quartet with Cindy Birdsong. It was Nona Hendrix, Patti LaBelle, Sarah Dash and Cindy Birdsong and they called themselves Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells. And they were a traditional girl group. You know, they wore the bouffant wigs and the Jackie Kennedy flips and the bouffants, dresses, T-strap heels, right in that whole assimilation into a white world of music where Black artists, they had to assimilate, which they couldn't be their authentic selves or talk about what was really happening during such an intense time in America during the civil rights movement. And so one of the things that you say in the text is that the owner of their first record label, Harold Robinson, he didn't think too much of, of young Patsy Holt or Patti LaBelle. Mm -mm. Um, what happened when he heard her sing? He, he flipped out. I mean, <laughs> he kind of went into a bell frenzy and, you know, decided to create a, create a label called, uh, I, it had something with the word bell in it. I can't actually remember. I think it's in the book. But, um, you know, he thought she was really unattractive. It was really insulting. And then she opened her mouth to sing and it was like, whoa. So, you know, he signed them right up to his label. And he was a car salesman. He'd never really done records before, so. Okay, and, and what, what was one of their first recordings? What, what, what's one of their first songs that they went in the studio and recorded for Harold Robinson? Well, there was I Sold My Heart to the Junk Man, but that's, there's a whole story about that because it was actually another group that sang it and they were put out as the people to, to support the record. But they did end up re-recording it, and it became a huge hit. It was their first recording and their first hit. Mm -hmm. And after that, they had several other singles, but 
nothing as popular as I Sold My Heart to the Junk Man. So when you get a record, then you go on the road. Mm -hmm. And so the girls went on the road mm -hmm. and they traveled south mm -hmm. and they encountered the Chitling Circuit, which mm -hmm. was, as you say in the book, the first network of Black-owned venues. What was the experience like for the girls? I can't speak for them, but I have read things that they've said about the Chitlin Circuit, and um, it was rough. It wasn't easy. They were all traveling in a station wagon mm -hmm. through the racist South. They had several very frightening events happen while they were traveling the Chitlin, Chitlin Circuit, and they didn't make much money. You know, it, it was rough, but because of their love for music and what they were creating together vocally, they would get on stage in, in what uh, the Chitlin Circuit was sometimes referred to as the sardine houses because they were little spaces, you know? Mm -hmm. But all, everything they went through, it was okay once they hit the stage because they were giving so much of themselves through their music and, and getting so much from the audiences. Mm -hmm. So the payoff was music. They did it for love for the, for the most part. Did all Black artists travel the South in the Chitlin circuit? I mean, did the Supremes and did all the Motown Act, did they go through the same thing? I'm not really sure about that. I'm sure that there's Black scholars writing about this right now. Um, I know that uh, so the Supremes and many of the other groups played the Apollo. I mean, the Apollo was kind of like the pinnacle uh, venue of, of the Chitlin circuit. But whether or not the uh, Supremes, I don't know. I mean, I know there were a lot of people like Little Richard and Big Mama Thornton that were doing the Chitlin Circuit, a, a lot of the um, uh, Black comedians as well. You talk in the book about there's a difference between, uh, I want to say, the machine that was behind the Supremes and all the Motown acts versus what was behind the, the girls who were in Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Well, you know, M Motown had an incredible factory approach to their acts. You know, they had built-in songwriters like Smokey Robinson and all these great people. And um, they would uh, bring the girls to charm school to teach them how to walk and present. And um, they had the best musicians playing on all of those records. Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells didn't have that support system. And, you know, the other thing that set them apart from the Supremes and Martha Reeves and the Vandellas is Patti's voice. Yes. Martha Reeves and the Vandellas and all of those bands, they, those girl groups had, you know, hit, hit singles written, tailored to them, mm -hmm. but none of them had the voice of Patti. Mm -hmm. um, and pop music is about hearing a song you love and being able to sing along to it. Mm -hmm. Nobody could sing along to Miss Patti LaBelle when she went like in the stratosphere up there and which she would do. And if you listen to those early Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells records, it's a build. I mean, she yeah. just builds and then finally it's like, boom, you know? I think it was hard for people to place that because she was so extraordinary. It just didn't have the pop formula, that particular grouping. So when you talk about the pop formula, you talk about there, there has to be an ability to sing along or to sing. And, you know, this is how the, the girls came together. They could sing the mm -hmm. songs of that period. They're creating music that 
people cannot sing along to because of the extraordinary vocal abilities of Patti LaBelle. In part, yeah. Mm -hmm. How did the lyrical content fit Patti LaBelle's voice and, you know, how did it fit her? She was an extraordinary singer. She could step out on a song like Somewhere Over the Rainbow, right? Or uh, You'll Never Walk Alone. So they weren't, for the most part, doing any original material at that time. They were doing songs that where Patty could excel in terms of, you know, showing off her, I don't know, three, three, four octave range. There was that lack of, of a pop love song sensibility in the writing of the songs because Patty's voice would always eclipse any particular lyric. So it was a bit tough. So times are changing in, in the world. You know, we have the, the Vietnam War, we have the civil rights movement. And so lyrical content is, is going to change. But before all of that, and while all of that is going on, the bluebells become the sweethearts of the Apollo. Mm -hmm. This is something that they earned, and they earned it because of Patty's vocal abilities and the girls' harmonies, or, you know, what, what made them the sweethearts of such a tough place to play for performers, the mm -hmm. Apollo Theater? Well, I mean, Patty's voice, come on, you know? I mean, people will... I've watched uh, co concert footage of them at, at the Apollo and it's mind blowing how much the crowds, they, they would stand up and scream when she would do You'll Never Walk Alone. I mean, there's performances to be seen of YouTube on this, yeah. you know, really something. So they, their performances were so powerful that they attracted fans across a spectrum and one of those fans was an, another well-known, soon to be, or in the future to be well-known singer, Luther Vandross. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about Luther Vandross's connection to Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells? Well, Luther started following them early on and he was just smitten with their sound. And even early be before LaBelle became the space divas that we know and love, he always thought they had an, an incredible blend and he, he snuck into their dressing room one day with gowns in his arm, pretending that he was a, a wardrobe person just so that he could meet them. And he ended up becoming the head of, he started a fan club for them as well. You know, I remember uh, seeing some quotes from him when they became LaBelle and they played the Met, how fierce it was. And like, it's the, you know, the most unforgettable concert you've ever seen. So he, yeah, he was their number one fan. And so at this point, you know, they're still struggling as far as their recordings are concerned. They work with the great Curtis Mayfield and, you know, 1967 hits and something happens. Cindy Birdsong leaves, mm -hmm. she just up and leaves. Can you talk a little bit about where this leaves the group when Cindy Bird's song leaves and, you know, how they are on Atlantic Records and they go to England. Can you talk about what happens after Cindy Bird's song leaves? When Cindy Bird's song left, it was a huge betrayal for LaBelle and Patty, Nona and Sarah, because they were so tight. 
and Cindy just kind of vanished. She just, they didn't know anything about her whereabouts. And then all of a sudden they hear through the grapevine that she's joined the Supreme. So it was quite a, a betrayal. The other stuff that was happening during that time period was that boy bands in England were starting to play rock and roll and they were self-contained bands. You know, the Beatles wrote their own material. The Rolling Stones wrote their own material. And, you know, everybody was in love with the London scene and that music coming out of, uh, of England. The girl groups started to kind of fade away a little bit. They weren't as exciting. And I think they, they hit a slump. They, they didn't have any hit records. Atlantic put out so many singles of theirs that never really did so well. They were devastated by Cindy's betrayal and her leaving. And they were kind of in a tight spot. Vicki Wickham, the woman who was producing Ready Steady Go at the time in England, it was kind of like the Dave Clark show here. It was the biggest rock and roll show on television. And Vicki Wickham was the first person to put people like Jimi Hendrix on TV and the Beatles and the Stones. Um, so she won. She had heard from Dusty Springfield that they were amazing, that their vocal blend was incredible. And Vicki invited them to come to London to do the show. So they performed on Ready, Steady, Go. It was a big success. They went back to New York and they were kind of involved in the black arts movement, like starting to sing uh, in places with Nikki Giovanni and, and people like that. So there, you know, the politics of the black arts movement, was they were starting to absorb that. They had met Vicky, who was very visionary about what she thought they could do, but they were still kind of in a bad place here in the States. And Sarah Dash decided, hmm, maybe I should call Vicky Wickham. Maybe she'll have some advice for us because they were very friendly when, you know, when they went to England. Vicky said, yeah, let's talk. And she brought them over to England again. And that's when the reinvention began. And Nona Hendricks had just started writing songs as well. I think her first song was called I Need Your Love. And it was Curtis Mayfield loved it. And he encouraged her to keep writing. But she was always writing poetry. So yeah, when they went to England, it was whole new world, you know, and Patty felt very much out of her element because Vicky's prompt was, you're three strong black women who have a lot to say and your voices are incredible together. And I think in a, in a sense, Patty was used to being kind of the star of the show and she would remain the, the, you know, the lead singer, but this was kind of revolutionary because Nona started writing songs, Sarah wrote a couple songs, it became a collaboration uh, where they were starting to sing from their own authentic experience as Black women. Vicky really encouraged that, and she became their manager. And they began to reinvent us simply LaBelle. We dropped the Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells. Now we are the three. So the musical landscape has changed. We have the British invasion. We have all of this freedom. You talk about the Black arts movement and this program that the girls appeared on in New York. And, you know, there's Toni Morrison on and there's this Nikki Giovanni. And all of these people are on this program. And LaBelle, as they are now christened, are on this show all the time. And I can see how things are coming together. They're coming together. One of the things that you talk about in the book is about how Vicki Wickham 
talks to them about the parts of being a rock star or, you know, just to, to transform from the R&B soul thing to being a rock star, it involves changing the way that you dress, you know, freeing up your appearance. You talked about before this assimilation that they took on, you know, they assimilated, they wore the, the uniform of mm -hmm. a girl group, the bouffant hair, the Jackie Kennedy flips, you know, there's there this picture of them in these little sailor suits. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, if you look at the pictures, and we're going to take a look at some photos shortly, you could see that there is an emptiness in their eyes, as opposed to when you see them. And, you know, when we take a look at these, these photos, you're going to see that they're now they're more upright. You can see it comes from the inside out. You change your mind, you change the way you dress, you change the way you speak, you have changed the way you think. And it all comes, it all comes together. So now we have the women have formed their own company. Another coincidence occurs. Vicki Wickham has an interview schedule with singer-songwriter Laura Nero. Can you talk to us about how this basically, you know, this changes everything. Yeah, Vicki um, was a rock journalist before she became the producer at Ready Steady Go and, and LaBelle's manager, but she loved writing about music and she had heard Laura Nero and wanted to interview her. I think it was Patty came alone. Yeah, she didn't bring Nona and Sarah, but Patty accompanied Vicki and it was kind of like musical, kismet you know these two really fell for each other musically and started singing all of these old girl group hits that they were you know loved as they were growing up laura said she really wanted to you know uh, have them sing on her next record and the next record would be kind of a tribute to the girl group sound and it's, it's really extraordinary that album it's called gonna take a miracle and you can just hear how much these women loved each other Oh, yeah. as friends and as singers and as musicians. It's it's really an extraordinary record. I, I think it changed all of their lives, really. When I heard it, it changed my life. It's like when you talk about the, the, the machinations of the girl group rhetoric, you know, all right. of that. And then they go back in with Laura Nero. And Laura Nero was a songwriter who didn't have the success with the songs that she wrote that would be successful for other people. Right. I mean, it's yeah. like when I think of the fifth dimension, their big hits are songs that were written by Laura Nero, you know, Three Dog Night. You just think of all these people who had hits with songs that Laura Nero wrote. Right. You listen to them today, they don't sound dated at all. They don't. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. The album recorded in this collaboration with the members of LaBelle, mm -hmm. there are songs on that album, and I still call it an album. Uh, there are songs on that album that they are just so hauntingly beautiful. Laura Nero's voice just really works with the members of LaBelle. Things from way down in there. 
there's obviously something going on with her in, in her personal life that yeah. is causing her to sing from such a, a deep place. And they seem to be transformed by this experience. Can you talk about where they go vocally, musically from the Laura Nero experience? Yeah, well, here's what I think. I think, and this is just my opinion, sure. but uh, I, I believe that that album, there's a concept and I talk about this whenever I talk about art. It's called The Duende, written about by Frederico Garcia Lorca, the poet. Mm -hmm. It's a concept that originated in Southern Spain. Mm -hmm. And you know how writers always think, well, I'm waiting for the muse, I'm waiting for the muse. This is kind of the opposite of that. Basically, the, what the duende is, is it's like a little spirit that gets in through your emotional wounds. And yes. we all have them. Yes, we do. We're all scared of them. Because, you know, it exposes us and we don't want to be exposed. We want to hide all of our hurts and our emotional wounds. So, but in terms of art, you can't make great art if you can't face the duende and let that spirit come in through your emotional wounds and back out through your art. I mean, that is what happened on that record. And it, you know, listen, I think Patty Nona and Sarah have always had duende. But yeah. collectively with Laura, they unleashed something and it was a power that I had never, ever heard uh, on record. If we want to imagine what that felt like for them, I think they said, oh my God, this is like, the, this is everything. Mm -hmm. This is what we have to carry into our work going forward, you know? Um, and they did, and they did. And Nona started writing um, material for the band and their voices became more of like a, it wasn't just Patty in the lead with the light background voices. It was, then it was like this beautiful roar. I call them a three-headed lioness, you know? And, and it was just extraordinary from then on, they started making records and it was kind of one step at a time, you know, they, they did their first LaBelle record. They, then they did Moonshadow. Then they did pressure cooking, which was boom, you know, which is an, a, an extraordinary album that got buried by RCA. Critics loved it, but RCA didn't know what to do with all that, you know, female black ferocity. Well, what's so strange about that is, is that we have Sly and the Family Stone mm -hmm. singing Babies Making Babies and, you know, I mean, just all the types of things that they're singing is socially conscious, it is visionary, it is revolutionary, it is the consciousness of Black people after the death of Martin Luther King. And, you know, we got Watergate going on. We have all of these things going on in this country. Hmm. And you have people who are singing from that place. Why is it that Sly and the Family Stone I mean, they were successful with talking about up front. Mm -hmm. So was Stevie Wonder. So were the Isley Brothers. I mean, there's, you know, women. It's like the misogyny against women has always been there. You know, it's in the music business. You can only be so powerful. Like case in point, Tina Turner, when she did the Phil Spector, yeah. River Deep, Mountain High. I mean, that nobody would promote it. 
Nobody. I mean, it, because it was just too intensely powerful. Mm -hmm. And and you know, this is this misogyny, it just keeps going, it keeps going, it's rolling, it's rolling through our culture and our music all the time. I mean, now they're attacking Patrice Colors, who is the you know, person who one of the people who created the Black Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. You know, black women aren't supposed to make money. Well, how come she's buying houses? Mm -hmm. The woman, you know, the woman has book deals, she's got a development deal with, I think it's Warner Brothers. I can't remember which, but you know, she's making money. She's allowed, she's not allowed to have buy houses, you know, because she's also a radical. I mean, it's such BS, excuse me. You know what I'm saying? So that's what LaBelle had to deal with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Lady Marmalade was their biggest hit because it was black sexual ferocity from, from women, but the political songs never had a chance. I mean, I think that it's so, it's so sad. The good news is, is that the music is still here. It is available for us to, to listen to. Can we talk about Lady Marmalade and that album, the Nightbirds album? Can you talk about that? You know, there's a song on the album that is, you say, meaningful to you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. There's a song called Nightbird. On, on the record. When I was a child, I was 13, I underwent a very violent episode in my life where I was um, held for three days and raped and, you know, and there was a gun involved. It was just really a terrible thing. And many trauma survivors um, bury, bury the trauma, you know, so that they don't really have to think about it. And that was something that I did. I buried it and didn't want to think about it. <laughs> because it was just too, too much pain. And then I heard the album Nightbirds and that particular song Nightbird, which talks about a woman being able to, to fly away from, you know, the pain and suffering she might feel. It's a very transcendent song. It's a really spiritual song. I heard that song for the first time and it, it allowed me to face what had happened to me because as the Nightbird flies, when I was Going through that trauma, I disassociated and left my body. I remembered how that felt. And I had to go into that experience to heal. And that particular song helped me heal. It helped me heal. And, and you know, later I, I read Patty's uh, memoir and she was sexually assaulted. And I can't speak for the other, other members, but I knew when I heard that song that somebody in that group had gone through a similar experience. It was the same for me. It's like you recognize the depth that a person has. You know, it's like we connect to that depth. We're looking for, I can speak for me and say I was looking for someone to sing out what I was feeling on mm -hmm. the inside. And mm -hmm. I found that in the, the music of, of LaBelle, especially in the lyrical content written by Nona Hendricks. Yes. Uh, it just spoke to me. I wanna get to the show in 1975 at mm -hmm. the Allen Theater. We both attended this show. Talk to us a little bit about that experience. You write about it in the book and again, I encourage everyone who's listening and will listen to this 
podcast to go out and get this book. It will be known as a seminal text on why the legacy of LaBelle, the music group, why it matters. And so if you could talk to us a little bit about your experience that night in February of 1975. Mm, yes, yes. But, you know, I, I always uh, loved music and would go to as many concerts as I could. And I was 20 at the time and I had just seen a David Bowie show the previous year. I think it was the Diamond Dogs Floor Show yes. where he, he had incredible theatricality on stage, like with sets and dancers and it, it was extraordinary. I'd never seen rock and roll matched up with theater in that way. And I did not expect that I would see that when I went to the LaBelle show. Bowie show, the audience was primarily white. And we know, because we're from Cleveland, how segregated Cleveland is, right? Still to this day. So I go to the LaBelle show and it's black and white and brown and queer and straight and everybody's dressed in silver because Vicky had put out this promotional thing that, you know, the edict was to dress in silver. So people did, and it was incredible. So creative and so like, spray painted butt cheeks and chaps and stuff. I mean, it was wild. Martin Luther King said something about black music having a, an emotional integration, mm -hmm. which I saw that night for the first time in Cleveland because there wasn't any animosity or no. you know, nothing. It was just beautiful. And, and then <laughs> the, the women come on and it's like, known as coming down from wires, for, you know, uh, and then Pat and Sarah's in the spotlight and then Patty's coming down on the other side with wings. I mean, it was just like, oh my God. And the audience lost their minds, lost their minds. I was queer back then and suffered for that, got beat up a lot, but um, <laughs> water under the bridge. You know, they, they were playing with sexuality between women too. You know, like Nona would chase Sarah around with a whip and I was like, whoa, this is new. I mean, it, and I'm sure, you know, a lot of it had to do with the theatricality and the queerness of David Bowie as well. It was the ethos at the time that you could, you know, be imaginative and bolder in sexuality, in theatrics. And they embraced all of it. They were the only women that were doing that. I mean, they had on space suits designed by Larry Legaspi that were just phenomenal. No, no other women were doing that. You know, it was extraordinary. Well, I mean, Betty Davis dressed in space gear and silver. She did, but she was just a solo artist. Right. Was a, an actual self-contained group in the sense that they wrote their own material. It's like this is Afrofuturism. You know, this is what we now collectively know as Afrofuturism. I think that for me, I, I felt that I was at home. I finally found a place where I can, can be creative. I could be myself. It's not that I was queer. It's just that I always loved the future. Always loved the future. I, you know, I, I used to disassociate as well because of trauma that I had, had occurred in my life, but I always wanted to see the future. This is Why LaBelle Matters, written by Adele Berthe. This is an important work of love. We wanna have Adele read us 
some closing thoughts from the book. Thank you. When LaBelle relinquished the masks of 1950s and 60s female propriety and embraced their true feelings and imaginations, they enacted the cosmic dance of Shiva Shakti as space girl, one foot stomping down to destroy the girl group paradigm of assimilation, the other foot raised in creation of the new, a look, a fierce beat, and a siren song of women as free beings embracing the ecstatic. Their voices tore through the restraints binding the longing of so many girls and women, people of color, queer outsiders, and the lonely. All those longing to be acknowledged, loved, and celebrated. Today, the corporate music business produces synthesized hit songs more akin to sonic algorithms than actual music. In our digital screen age, where every nuance of a singer's recorded emotion must be tuned, squeezed, compressed into oblivion, the analog majesty of LaBelle's vocal blend has no equal. Their voices, wild and brave on every piece of tape they ever graced with notes. These women knew a secret. It's the recipe of the musical sorceress, how to sing the dark into light. The unraveling of womankind's buried musical history is just beginning, and clearly it is ours for the telling or it won't be told. That is just so powerful. Mm -hmm. I just really want to thank you for, you know, coming by today and sure. talking with us from this obviously a labor of love. Uh, writing this book. Again, I would like to, to say thank you to the people at Logan Berry for allowing Adele and myself to come by this afternoon and share, you know, just our thoughts and feelings and emotions about this group. They, they meant so much to me and, you know, Adele, I know they mean so much to you. Totally, totally. Thank you so much, Maisha, for having us do this. And Charlotte, it's been such a pleasure. I'm, I'm really happy we were able to talk. Loganberry Books is open to the public Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can order books from us at store.loganberrybooks.com. You can also order from us by calling the store directly at 216-795-9800 or by emailing books at logan.com with your specific requests. You can support us by purchasing through our affiliate pages on bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Loganberry Books at loganberry.papertrail.com for digital ebooks or on libro.fm for all your audiobook needs. Join our listener support program where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to keep this podcast going. Go to our website at loganberrybooks.com. Check our social media at Loganberry Books and make sure to rate and subscribe to Lines from Loganberry and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Lines from Loganberry was produced and edited by Ted Hubish. As always, tune in next week for more bookish content from Loganberry Books. Thank you for listening. <laughs>